Turn in your Bibles, 2 Kings chapter number 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. Let me say what a blessing it is to be in the house of God with you today. Excited for what the Lord is going to do. And thrilled to see our visitors here today. I hope you feel welcome in the house of the Lord. I trust God's going to speak to your heart on this morning. Uh, we don't just come for formality around here. We come to hear from the Lord. Amen. And our desire is that God may gain ground in our heart and that Christ may be glorified through our obedience to His Word. You know, this book won't help you at all if you won't obey it, if you won't apply it in your life. It's entirely possible to live your life having an acquaintance with the Word of God and a knowledge of it, uh, and it never change your life if you won't apply it. Amen? We have to allow the Word of God to gain an entrance in our hearts through a willingness to hear and a willingness to heed the truth of it. But the Word of God is powerful. And if you'll allow it to work in your heart, it will work in your heart. I promise you that. And I want to see that happen this morning. Second Kings chapter number 2. While you turn there, let me give you a little bit of context before we read our, our text of Scripture this morning. We find ourselves uh, immediately after what we could call a transitional moment in the record of Old Testament Scripture. Now, what I mean by that is this. One of the great giants of Old Testament faith has just walked off the scene of world history and another giant of Old Testament faith has taken his mantle upon him. Now, of course, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know I speak of the two Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. After many years of ministry, God doing amazing, mighty, powerful things that uh, in many ways arrested the hearts and attention of Israel and at a pivotal time in their history was a voice for holiness and for the truth of God. Elijah, who has been the prophet of the Lord, has been miraculously taken to heaven. Uh, the Bible records for us that he did not die, but he was translated. In other words, he was taken from this world to the next world. He was taken from earth to heaven. Only two individuals in the Word of God that did not see death uh, that we know of, and that was Enoch and Elijah. Did not see death, but rather was translated, was carried away to heaven in a whirlwind. Well, Elisha, his young protege, was there and witnessed all of this transpire. In fact, Elisha said this, that he would not leave Elijah until Elijah left him. Boy, I tell you, that's a good principle for sticking by the Word of God, isn't it? I'm not going to leave it. Amen. I'm not going to leave the path of faithfulness. I'm not going to leave the truth of the Word of God. I'm not going to leave living for Christ. If ever we're parted, it's going to have to leave me. And thank the Lord it won't. Amen. And so Elisha said, I'll not leave you till you leave me. He says, I want to be with you at the moment that God takes you. And uh, Elijah says, because you've asked this of me, I will grant you something in return, whatever you ask. Most of us would have asked for a bigger television set. Amen. But that's not what Elisha asked for. Instead, he said, I want a double portion of your spirit. Now, that's not a mysterious phrase. Here's simply what it means. Everything God's done through you, I want God to do twice as much through me. Now, if Elijah was a man whose ministry was centered around ego, he would have been offended by that. He would have said, well, who do you think you are that you can do twice what I can do? But uh, Elijah was not a man of that sort. Instead, he said, well, you've asked a hard thing. He said, nevertheless, if you're with me when I'm taken, it shall be so. And I will say this, our heart's desire ought to be for the next generation to do more for God than what we have done. Elijah, he didn't bow up. He said, no, I want you to do more than what I have done. It just makes me ask this question in your home and my home, in your life and my life. Are we raising our children to do more than we've done 
for Jesus Christ? Or have we lowered the bar and lowered the standard? Have we made excuses? Have we acclimated them to this world system and uh, uh, better educated them to fit in in the world than we have to make a difference in the world? Elijah says, uh, no, I want you to do twice what I've done. And so Elisha is there at the moment that God translates Elijah to heaven. Elijah casts his mantle down and Elisha takes it up and immediately God, through a miracle, makes evident his presence and his blessing upon the life of Elijah. Now, all of this has transpired in the verses leading up to this moment. But I don't really want to preach on those uh, events this morning. Instead, I want us to look at one of, I think, probably the hard scriptures in the Word of God. Now, by that, I don't mean that it's necessarily mean. But what I mean is that oftentimes there is great difficulty in Bible students understanding the passage that I want to read to you this morning. And by the Lord's help, I want to help you to understand it and for God to do a work in your heart. Second Kings chapter number 2, verse number 23. The Bible says, And he, and that's speaking of Elisha, after the departure of Elijah, And he went up, from thence unto Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. There came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear forty and two children of them. He went from thence to Mount Carmel And from thence he returned to Samaria. Let's pray together this morning. Father, I pray that this morning you would uh, give wisdom to my words. And Lord, that the the thoughts and and the truths that you've laid upon my heart this morning, you'd help me to communicate clearly. But Lord, beyond that and before all that, I pray that the word of God would find an entrance in the hearts of every hearer this morning, myself included. Lord, I pray that you do a work in us that only heaven can do. Lord, I don't know the the need of each heart that's here this morning. But there's not a heart here, Lord, but what you know, their greatest despairs, their greatest worries, their greatest anxieties, their greatest weaknesses. So, Father, I trust you this morning. Lord, I cannot do it. I can't work in people's hearts. I can't affect change. I can't change their attitudes or their minds or, or their beliefs about anything. But, Lord, I believe the Word of God has that power. And the Spirit of God has both that power and that office this morning. So I pray that, Lord, you'd give wisdom and power to the things that are said. Help us to rightly divide the word of truth. And, Lord, may you do a work in us that would make us more like Christ. For the lost person, that's to save them. Lord, I pray if there's any lost under the sound of my voice, they would acknowledge that need of Christ in their life and and, and their condition and their, their lost state and that they'd come to Christ before it's eternally too late. Lord, any that are discouraged, I pray you'd encourage them. Any that are haughty, that they'd be abased. Lord, any that are distant from you, that you'd draw them close to you. God, we're trusting you and we're committing it to your care. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I don't often write out my thoughts when I preach. I'm what many people would maybe call an extemporaneous preacher. But I wanted to be very cautious in how I handled this passage of Scripture and very deliberate in how we approach it. It's not lost on me this morning that this is a difficult passage of Scripture. It's not lost on me that the mental imagery of two bears savaging 42 children and slaying them is a shocking and disturbing notion. And because of that, I think there have been many disingenuous people that have taken this passage of Scripture and used it to foolishly charge God. 
The same God that the Bible tells me loves you and me, the same God that is the God of John 3.16, is the same God that commanded these two she-bears to come out of the woods and tear these 40 and two children. Now, we have one of two choices as we approach this passage. We could say simply uh, that a God that would do that must be no God at all and throw away our Bible and throw away our faith. Or being students of the Bible and believers in the Word of God, we can endeavor to understand this passage and try to learn something of the nature and personality of God and His truth from it. You see, the atheist and the unbeliever often point to this passage as proof that God is both cruel and unjust. Now, their claim is that a loving God wouldn't allow bears to devour children and that a just God wouldn't dispense such a severe punishment for such a small transgression. Here's my question. Is that an intellectually honest charge, though? See, the atheist would also claim that God is a fantasy. The unbeliever would likewise declare the Bible to be unreliable. It's amazing to me that people can be scandalized by something they think is a fairy tale in the first place. But beyond the illogical nature of their position, it's also an intellectually lazy accusation. You see, if a person doesn't understand something, then the appropriate natural thing to do is to study out the matter. I'll be the first to admit to you there are many things in this Bible that I do not understand. And I could foolishly charge God declaring myself to be superior to him, both in in knowledge and in character, and proclaim that because I don't understand him, he must be wrong. Or I could have just an ounce of human humility, recognize that there may be some things going on that I don't at first glance understand. Here's the question we have to ask. What exactly does the Bible teach about God's character and his dealings with humanity? Is this passage consistent with what the Bible declares about God? I'd remind you, and I understand the unbeliever would reject this statement, but the same God that wrote the New Testament wrote the Old Testament. The same God that uh, commended His love towards lost mankind on Calvary is the same one that commanded these bears to devour these children. And so, if I am to understand that the same God that portrays himself in one way in the Word of God, portrays himself in this manner, in this passage, then there must be something about this passage that makes those two ideas of God compatible. Now, here's the question we'd ask. What does God look like in the Bible? Now, I wrote down just a series of questions that I would ask and answer with Scripture. If you're a student of anything, you ought to seek to study it out and understand it. If you're a student of the Bible, you ought to study out the Bible and seek to understand what it says about God. So what does the Bible say about God? Is he cruel? Is he unjust? Is he fickle? Is is he full of rage? Is he full of, of petulant tyranny? Well, that's certainly not the way that God is described in the Bible. For instance, let's ask this question. Is God loving by nature? Is it in his nature to love people? Well, 1 John 4, 5 says this, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. You know, the devil always seeks to counterfeit by direct inversion. Here's what I mean is he takes something from God and he turns it completely inside out and then tries to peddle it as from God. You know, one of the problems in our society today is one of the mantles has become that love is God. That love has a sanctifying element in and of itself. That that there's no wrong person or wrong sense in which you could love someone. And that love has a, a cleansing or sanctifying effect on a person's life. That no matter what depravity they engage in, it's okay if it's done out of love. It's part of the reason politicians want to remind you how much they love you. Amen. 
But the Bible does not say love is God. But the Bible says God is love. It tells me this, if I'm going to understand love, I'm going to have to know something about who God is. It tells me this, if I want a right definition of what love is, I don't go to the psychological textbooks, I don't know, go to culture, I don't go to the, to the scientific experts, rather I can go to the Word of God and learn what love looks like. So I would say this, the Bible teaches me that God is not only loving by nature, but that God is love. Now here's the next question. God is love, but who does God love? Well, let's ask this question. Is humanity the recipient of God's love? What does the Bible teach? Well, one of the verses we've already quoted, but I'll quote it again this morning, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Did you pick up the first phrase? God so loved the world. Not God so hated the world. Not God was so indifferent by the world. Not God was so inconvenienced by the world. But God so loved the world that He did this. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 makes it very explicit. It says, And this was manifested, the love of God toward us. He loves us. He loves you this morning. Because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love. You say, Preacher, how do I know what love looks like? Well, your Bible tells you. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. I think there's... Uh, indisputable biblical evidence that humanity is the object of God's love or the recipient of God's love. God loves mankind. He loves you. He loves me. He loves your lost loved ones. He loves your friends that curse Him. He loves your neighbors that, that scoff at Him. He loved you when you were in that condition. He loves mankind. Now here's a, a third question we might ask. What do we have to do to earn this love? Or let's ask it this way, is this love that God has towards humanity, is it an earned love or is it dependent upon man's obedience in any way? Well, the Bible gives us an answer to that. You say, well, preacher, maybe these children, they hadn't done enough to earn God's love. But listen to what Romans chapter 5 says, verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You haven't done anything to earn the love of God. You couldn't do anything to earn the love of God. But I've got a good bit of news for you. You don't have to do anything to earn the love of God. He loves you already. It's not dependent upon man's merit or man's obedience. First John 4.19 says this, We love Him because He first loved us. He didn't look down and say, Well, these people love me so much that I guess I should reciprocate that love. No, uh, the world hated God. The, the sinner hates God. You say, Well, preacher, I know sinners and they're not angry about God. Well, no, they're, they're content to go along their path. But anything uh, that comes about that is of God or about God or by God, they find themselves living in direct contradiction of. And if you ever try tried to take their sin away from them, you'd find them to immediately in visceral hatred lash out towards God. In other words, this, this love that God has, it's, it, it's not something that's earned or dependent upon man's obedience. Well, you say, well, preacher, that's good. And maybe God starts out loving us. But maybe if we do something wrong, God quits loving us. I've known people like that. I've known a great many people. I've probably been that person at times, if I'm to be honest where somebody did something that trespassed against my love and trust, and I quit loving them the way that I should. But is God's love that way? Well, uh, listen to what the Bible says in Exodus 34, 6. says, The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering 
and abundant in goodness and truth. Say, preacher, what does long-suffering mean? It means he's patient. It means he, he puts up with. Now, there are some things God won't tolerate in the life of a believer, but when it regards His love for humanity and His love for, for His creation, he, he puts up with so many things that we do. And you say, well, preacher, I might, I might cause God not to love me. No, God didn't love you because you earned it in the first place. He won't quit loving you just because you've messed up and don't deserve His love. You've never deserved His love. Some would say, well, preacher, God loved these children and they did something wrong and God got angry with them. Well, listen to what the Bible says in Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. We have a God that forgives. Psalms 86, 15 says, but thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. He is a merciful God. He's a merciful God. You say, well, preacher, does God really love? Does He love mankind? Does mankind have to do something to earn that love? Can mankind do something to lose that love? No, the Bible teaches that the love of God is towards all mankind and freely offered of no merit and of no deservedness on their part. Well, here's here's a question. Is God's love only offered to those that love and appreciate? Some people will only love those that will love them in return. I want you to understand something. I'm not implying any universalist position. There's, you're either saved or you're lost, and if you're lost without Christ, you'll die and go to hell. There's no question. There's no, there's no biblical debate to be had about that. Uh, there might be philosophical debates to be had about it and cultural debates to be had about it, but there's no biblical debate to be had about the, the fate of the person that dies without Jesus Christ. But you understand that even as he casts a soul into hell, it breaks the heart of God. It's not something he delights in. And, and you say, well, preacher, is God's love only offered to those that love and appreciate him? Well, listen to what Luke chapter 6 says, verse number 35. Christ's teaching uh, those uh, followers of his says, But love ye your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. You see, I think from the record and testimony of the Word of God that the idea that God is a cruel God is entirely unbiblical and unfounded according to the record of Scripture. Say, so, yeah, preacher, you read a lot of verses, but go ahead and read that passage in Second Kings again. Well, here's the question we have to ask. So if the same Bible that records this story portrays God as loving, merciful, and compassionate, then there must be an explanation of this passage that coincides with what we know to be true of God. Let's say it this way. There must be something we're missing in our approach and perspective of this passage in the Word of God. It's interesting when you start to study matters like this out, all the different ways that, uh, you know, some commentators treat the Bible as a problem that has to be resolved. (laughs) And uh, it's interesting when you read Bible commentators and scholars about this passage Some commentators dismiss the shocking nature of this passage by changing the meaning of the phrase little children. They claim that it actually means young men or young people. There's two problems with this explanation. The first is that it disregards the scholarship of the King James translators and the preservation of the Scripture. In other words, to say, well, that's not really what it means. Well, if that's not what it means, then why is it what it says? 
To say that is to say I know more than the, than the 54 men that translated the King James Bible. I know more than these uh, giants of scholarship. I know more than the collective work of these great minds. I know how it should be translated even though they did not. The other problem is it completely disregards the fact that God has promised to preserve His Word. I believe it should say, little children. Second problem is this. It doesn't really address the shocking nature of God's judgment. I mean, I'll just ask you this. Would it really be any easier to accept if they were teenagers instead of little children? Now, those that are raising teenagers, you need to stop and pray about that answer before you give it. No, I mean, let's be honest. Let's say it it was the shocking nature of this passage is in the fact that we believe that these Young children, little children, doing something that they don't understand the weight of, have innocently or or at least uh, uh, non-maliciously transgressed against God, and that He, in overhanded way, in ham-fisted way, has heaped judgment upon them. Would that really be changed if they were teenagers instead of little children? I don't think so. Other commentators, they simply claim that God behaved cruelly, but that He's God. Therefore, it's okay. And it's not cruel. (laughs) That's a pretty convenient way to address any question, isn't it? Amen. While certainly we can't understand everything that God does, God doesn't expect us to blindly accept an explanation that flies in the face of everything else the Bible teaches us about God. In other words, I would say this. If we can't find some explanation of this passage that coincides with the nature of God, then we have rendered this passage ineffective in the Word of God. If it's not there to teach us, what's it there for? Teach you to carry bear spray? I don't think so. No, you see, here's the truth. God doesn't expect us to blindly accept an explanation that flies in the face of everything else the Bible teaches us about Him. Nor does God expect us to redefine words in unreasonable ways to accommodate a noble explanation of His behavior. So if there must be an explanation that is both reasonable and allows for the scriptural portrayal of God as both loving and merciful, then what is it? We could maybe say it this way, that as we seek to understand this passage, understanding that God does not prescribe this judgment for everyone that makes fun of a preacher, for everyone that that behaves in a sacrilegious or blasphemous way. There are two thresholds of criteria that we must meet if we're going to understand this passage. One, God must be just in how He dealt with these children. And two, God must be teaching us something that required the severity of this judgment. You know, I think the answer is found in an examination of these little children. Think about three things with me. Number one, consider their past. There's a lot you can learn about a child's upbringing by their behavior. These children had apparently not been taught manners, respect, or obedience. While every child does wrong, mine included, sometimes mine more than the others, the behavior of these children was obviously learned behavior. You don't behave the way they did without first seeing it somewhere. They had no doubt been raised in homes where cruelty was a common occurrence. Not only consider their past, but consider their present. I'd ask this simple question, where are these children's parents? There is obviously no restraining or nurturing influence in their lives. They're allowed to roam feral, harassing people. Theirs must have been a very hard and chaotic home. Now, I know some of y'all was raised in a generation where children traveled in packs. That might sound a little funny to you. 
But I'd remind you that this Lord of the Flies scenario is not just a few neighborhood kids together, but it's so many of them that 42 of them are slain, and the Bible doesn't say that that was all of them. This is obviously not merely neighborhood kids getting into a little mischief, but this is a roaming band of children who are being allowed to terrorize their community. But then I want you to consider their prospects. You see, these two things alone aren't sufficient to explain God's actions. God doesn't hate unfortunate children with poor homes. He loves them and he pities them. And he loved these children too. So God's act of judgment must not have been an expression of hate, but rather an example of mercy. You see, if it was merciful to slay these little children, then it must have been cruel to let them continue living, correct? Therein lies the key to this passage. These children had no future here and a worse eternity in front of them had they lived. We could say it this way. They were better off slain than living the life that they would have lived. (laughs) It's a heavy topic for a humorous title. I will preach to you on this thought this morning. I'd rather be bear scat than grow up like these kids would have grown up. Let's say it this way. There's worse things than death. And God's behavior in this passage is obviously an expression not of malice, but of mercy. And so could it be that what the Holy Spirit is communicating to you and I is that there are things that can be present in our life that render our life worse than death and our eternity the worse for having lived the life that we've lived. You remember what the Bible says about Judas in the New Testament? Hey, it'd be better for that man if he had never lived. Say, preacher, God's a cruel God to allow all these children to be slain. I'd say this, if God is a kind God, then what he did in this passage is not cruelty, but must be understood in the light of kindness. And you and I need to read this passage and ask ourselves this question. If the things that were present in the lives of these children rendered their future so bleak, so desperate, so degenerate, that God in mercy, loving those children, caring about those children, desiring the best for those children, would sooner snuff them out of this world than let them grow up to be what they would have been and split hell wide open and be the worse for it. And how dangerous are those matters in their life? I want to give you four thoughts this morning and then we'll go eat soup. And then you'll forget about all the things I've said and You'll love me again. Amen. I want to say number one this morning. There's four things that characterize this group of children. And in these four things, we find elements in our life that are dangerous, destructive, and corrosive. And I'm going to frame all of them according to that title that I gave a moment ago. Let me say number one this morning. When I read this passage, what does it teach me? What does it teach you? Well, it teaches me this morning that I'd rather be bear scat than be lawless. I'd rather meet the fate that these kids met than live a lawless life. One of the things that's apparent when you read this passage of Scripture is that these kids are what we call out of control. They ain't just throwing footballs across the gymnasium. Amen. They're harassing the man of God. 
They're not just merely getting into ordinary, run-of-the-mill neighborhood mischief. They didn't just break a pane in a window. They didn't even just go and steal a little candy out of the general store. These kids, a large horde and band of them, are being running through the countryside unchecked, unrestrained, and unwatched. We would say this, in many ways, these children represent perfectly to us the lawlessness of man's nature. Man is lawless by nature. You don't have to teach folks to break the law. They know how to do it just fine on their own. It's funny, we, we had back a couple years ago, we had what the, the media called a summer of love. And I just remind you, everything Satan says, he, he, I told you, it's inversion. It's always inversion. Where American cities were being burnt down. And it's funny, you know, I don't doubt one bit that there was some shady coordination of, of some of those events. You got pallets of bricks showing up uh, and, and nobody ordered them. I mean, somebody ordered them. But I highly doubt they had to go through and do a workshop on looting. Whatever movement of, of seething humanity in destructiveness and in chaos and in, in cruelty ever takes form in a society, it is never something that has to always be taught and trained and cultivated and nurtured. It is the nature of lost mankind when things are burning, when things are crumbling, when chaos is happening, to pitch in, jump in, and help out with the destruction that is at play. Now, you say, preacher, that's a problem. Well, it's not just a problem, it's a symptom. It's a symptom of the lawless nature of humankind in and of himself. It's the very reason that a child does not have to be taught to say no. They don't have to be taught how to be defiant. They don't have to be taught how to break rules. They don't have to be taught how to deceive. All of these things come perfectly natural to them. You see, the reality is when we look at these children, you say, preacher, you're being awful hard on these children. No, I think it's tragic and I think it's sad they didn't have people in their life that taught them to have a greater respect for authority. I think it is tragic they didn't have somebody in their life that loved them enough to teach them that sooner or later they're going to have to reckon with authority because their fate was due to their lawlessness. If they had had somebody grab them by the nap of their neck and say, no, son, no, young lady, you ain't going to live this way. They might not have wound up in the shape they wound up in. You say, preacher, that's interesting and everything, and and I appreciate the explanation, but what does that have to do with me? Well, here's what it has to do with you, and here's what it has to do with me. This is a vivid expression of both lawlessness and God's judgment of it, but can I remind you that in your life and ours, lawlessness bears just as corrupt fruit for us. We are just as prone to lawlessness as this group of children was. Children are funny, man. They have a way of just, I don't know, just telling the truth. Like it's just a thing people do, you know. You gotta be careful things you tell your kids. They'll tell anybody. Get a little bit of attention. They don't care, you know. <laughs> they ain't worried about your reputation. <laughs> They'll tell anybody. It doesn't matter to them. But you know, in many ways, is that not expressive of the fact that they are, are, are in some ways manifestations of things that live and dwell within our hearts and within our natures as well? See, they may have not had the self-restraint to keep themselves from behaving in such a lawless way. Adults may have a a modicum of self-restraint that keeps them just through public decorum and culture and politeness from doing exactly what they did. But the very thing that lived in their heart that made them scoff at God and scoff at the man of God and scoff at the truth of God lies within your heart and my heart as well. Notice two things. Number one, notice the fearlessness of their rebellion. I, I, you know, I don't know. I was just, I, I was raised different. You probably were too. I, I trust you was probably raised different than these young people, these young little children were. But I would say this, man, I'd be terrified to death to speak to any adult this way. 
I was talking to my mom about this the other day about how there was a generation that was such that that, that they would say uh, anybody could whip them. And you, some of y'all was probably raised that way. I, it didn't have to be no like parent or uncle or blood or I mean it could just be a random person walking by. I saw you do something wrong, just snatch you up and set you on fire. And could you imagine being the type of child that would look at the prophet of God? He's not just a preacher. He's not just a pastor. Not that those are any small or mean things. But you understand he's the voice of God for the nation. And they look up at this man and mock him and scoff at him. Preacher, it's terrible. It's awful. Somebody ought to tell their parents. Well, who's going to tell your parents on you when your heart does that towards God as well? fact of the matter is, it's within your heart when God deals with your life, when God shows up as an authority in your life, when God exercises judgment in your life, you have the same inclination. I have the same inclination to want to bow up, to want to bristle, to want to shake our fist at God, to want to tell Him it's not His business, to want to tell Him He has no right. You see, they were just doing on the outside what's on the inside of most people. I see the fearlessness of their rebellion, but then I think about the fate of their rebellion. See, here's the danger, and here's why it is so important that we teach young people respect for authority, is because authority is not something that merely lives in the home. Authority is a reality of human existence. And let me even go a step further and say this, that authority is a divine quality. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody in authority is divine in the way they behave or exercise authority. But it is to say this, if you don't teach your children to respect authority, they're not going to respect God's authority. The preacher, it's terrible what God did to these young people. It's terrible that God slayed these little children. You know what would have been crueler? To let them grow up hating God, shaking their fist at Him, defying Him, and to live a life full of hell and full of brokenness, and to still die and split hell wide open. Some commentators have suggested these children weren't of an age to understand and know what they were doing, and I reject that. I don't think that's true. I think these children are of an age to understand what they's doing. I think that's an attempt to soften this passage or somehow make it more compatible with an idea of God without yielding ourselves to the truth and authority of the text of Scripture. If you want my opinion, I believe these children died and went to hell. That's why you got to be careful, Mike. You don't amen until the preacher's done saying something. You don't know what you might amen. Amen. Say, preacher, you delight in that. No, I don't delight in that. I'll go a step further. God didn't delight in that either. Tells me this, that God, while certainly not choosing for these children, and while certainly not in any ways uh, predestining or foreordaining these children to hell, God, in all of His wisdom and knowledge, understood the path that their life would take and the course that their life would take. And it was more merciful instead of letting them stack hell up on their account for Him to take them out of this world. You say, preacher, that's terrible. You couldn't know that. No, but God could know that. God could know that. And when we read this passage of Scripture, I can find no way to understand it other than the fact that God slaying them was more merciful than God suffering them. And evidently it tells me this, that the trajectory these young people, their life was on, was one of despair and destruction. So, preacher, that's terrible. I mean, couldn't they have repented? Well, God knew. God understood. But I just remind you what First Samuel, Samuel chapter 15 says about this matter of rebellion. In this matter of stubbornness, Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. 
Say, preacher, all they did was just act a little out of sorts. No, all they did was express the stubbornness, the, the, the rebellion, the willfulness, the waywardness in their heart and in their life. You say, preacher, you're telling me God will kill anybody that does that? No, God hasn't killed everybody that's done that. But God understanding and knowing the hearts of these children and understanding the fate and the path that lay in front of them uh, because of His great love, not only for them, but for you and I, has given us this woeful example in Scripture. Rebellion leads you down the path of hell. Stubbornness leads you to the mawing gates of hell. I'm saying this this morning. Hey, I'd rather be bearskat than be lawless with no respect for authority. Let me give you a second truth this morning since you're enjoying the first one so much. Let me say this. I'd rather be bearskat than be heartless. I'd rather be bearskat than be heartless. We said this, then be lawless with no respect for authority. But number two, then be heartless with no regard for others. You know, part of the reason their life was going to be so difficult was because of the cruelty that they had learned from the examples that they had seen. Think about the hardness of their words. It's always funny, you know, there's things we're taught when we're in Sunday school. Stick with us. And by the way, let me just say, Use this as an opportunity to say to our Sunday school teachers, make sure you're always biblical in what you teach. Not just adults, but little kids as well. Uh, Don't just give them soft answers. Don't just just teach them what the flannel graph says. Give them Bible answers. Because things stick with you. There's things that even today, as a pastor, over a decade, I'll read my Bible and think, well, that's weird. I, I never noticed that. And then I'll remember where I was taught something as a young child that may have not been exactly correct. And so I would say this, that we need to be careful in how we teach the Bible. You know something interesting? I have always been of the impression, maybe you're not, you're probably not, you're sharper than I am, but I was always under the impression that they were making fun of Elisha's bald head because he was naturally bald, like he was just a bald dude, you know? Like he just, the, the, they didn't have no minoxidil, and they just, and, and it, it went, and it, and it just, hair just went, and he just didn't have no hair. And that was why they were making fun of him, because they thought, well, that's going to hurt his feelings. And I think that's sort of G's and haws with our concept of the infantile mockery that's taking place. But I would also say this. If it's true that Elisha was naturally bald, I know of no other place in Scripture that would substantiate that. Here is the question I would ask. He could be naturally bald, but is there another explanation for his baldness? Well, I think there probably is. You see, there's no reason to believe that Elisha was naturally bald. It's entirely possible that he had shaved his head in grief and in mourning for his loss of Elijah. And if so, it makes the children's words particularly cruel. And you understand what they're doing. They're not just making fun of somebody that walks by with a bald head. Listen, those of us with bald heads, we're the handsome in the crowd. It's you people with hair we pity. That's all right. I didn't expect that to go well. Wish my bald brethren would back me up a little bit, but whatever. And uh, if you're bald, people know it. You might as well admit it. Amen. <laughs> but I don't think that's what's happening. You see, I think this is more akin to someone standing outside a funeral procession and mocking the grief of people that are walking by. These are not just just playground japes. These are not just infantile mockery and, and, and insults. They are making fun of the notion that Elijah has died and Elisha's faith in the world to come. 
I won't, I'll get to it here in a moment, but there's a reason they say go up, go up. They're looking at a man whose heart is broken. And instead of feeling any pity, that's why I say this learned behavior. Kids can be cruel, but usually they gotta learn this measure of cruelness. Man, they had learned this somewhere. Somebody had taught them to hate this deeply. Somebody had taught them to, to cut this sharply. And they're mocking him because his heart is broken, because he's lost his, his mentor, he's lost his man of God. They're saying your ministry's done, your life is done, you were supposed to be a prophet of God, he was supposed to be a prophet of God, and now look at you with your head shaved, mourning and grieving because he's gone. I see the hardness of their words, but you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the hardness of their way. Hey, preacher, how can a loving God do this? Because a loving God knew what lay in front of them. Can I tell you this? If you're a cruel person, you're going to have a hard life. <laughs> You'll have days where it's easy to be cruel. But woe be to you on those days when you need a little mercy. Listen to what the Bible says about mercy. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. James gets a little closer. He shaves a little closer. With it. Listen to what he says. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. That's a hard life. I'll tell you this, I'm thankful, I'm grateful. It's funny, you know, in high school, I was not always the nicest person in high school. I know that's just so hard for you all to understand. But I, sometimes I am, I'm ashamed at the way I treated others when I was a young person. You, you may have not been that way, you may have been just the most perfect, kind, sweet child to ever walked face of the earth. If so, you're probably one of them I picked on. And sometimes, I mean, it's the honest truth, I look back and, and, and I think to myself, boy, I wish I could find so and so and just say, hey, I'm not a jerk anymore. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but I mean, I, I you know, just say, hey, I, I'm sorry. You know, sometimes things got out of hand. And I'm glad I'm not judged by my worst moments. But I will tell you this. When we make cruelty a practice of life, we can expect cruelty in return. When we live a life with no mercy for others, we can expect no mercy in return. Say, preacher, it's so cruel that God would allow these bears to tear these children apart. It was either that or let life tear them apart. Say, well, preacher, they might have repented. They might have turned. Well, God in His infinite wisdom knew and understood what was going to transpire. But I would go a step further and say this. How's kids that have no respect for the concept of authority ever going to bow the knee before God's authority in the first place? He was sparing them of the life they would have lived. I would say this, I'd rather be bear scat than be lawless with no respect for authority or heartless with no regard for others. But I'd say number three, I'd rather, I'd rather be bear scat than be lifeless with no reverence for eternal things. Here's one of the things that's apparent when you read this passage. They did not believe in heaven. They did not believe in the life to come. And they did not believe in the truth of God's word. Say, preacher, I don't see that there. Well, here's what I meant. I mentioned a moment ago. They say this is their mock, their, their jape at him. Go up, thou bald head, go up. And I think often people have misunderstood that phrase because the Bible says he went up to Betha. And I think that people think what they're saying is go on, go on. We don't, we're not interested in you. Go on, keep going, keep going. I don't think that's what they were saying. I think when they were saying go up, they weren't saying go up. They were saying, go up. You're so upset about Elijah? Go be with him. 
He's taken up to heaven. Won't you go up and follow him too? Won't you go up there? You see, here's what they're mocking. They're not just mocking the path that the man of God is taking. They're not saying go up, go up, by the way, to to Bethel. Notice the place they were mocking. I think they were making fun of the idea that Elijah had been translated to heaven. You look at the timeline and word undoubtedly would have spread quickly of what had happened. And days have passed since Elijah has been translated up, has been uh, caught up into heaven. And I think word had reached Bethel. I think word had reached this community. I think these children, they were laughing and scoffing at him that he believed that. Now, we're starting to understand a little bit better the picture, aren't we? They're not just saying, oh, we hate bald people. They're not just saying, oh, we just want to be ugly or unkind. They had heard word that that old kooky prophet Elijah, word was going around that some chariot come out of heaven and some whirlwind picked him up and carried him to heaven. And now old Elisha, he's took up his mantle and he's following along preaching the same nonsense that Elijah preached. And they go and find him and say, do you really believe it's true, Elijah? Go ahead then. If you think it's true, go up. Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou heartbroken. Go up, thou grieved. They were mocking the notion that Elijah had been taken to heaven. Now stop and think about this. And I'm thankful for the mercy of God. I guess there's been many that's mocked heaven that'll go there because of the mercy and grace of God. But they're mocking the notion of a spiritual realm and of spiritual truth. They're saying it's a fairy tale. It's nonsense. Can I say this? We have young people growing up in this world that the entire world system is constantly inundating and pounding into their brain that perspective and worldview. It's always been strange to me. I don't know if I should say what I'm about to say, but that's never stopped me before, so I'm going to say it. I've always thought it's strange that parents should spend 18 years of their life raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and then spend $60,000 a year sending them to a place where everything that they have devoted their lives to teaching them is mocked and scoffed and undermined. I mean, listen, I, I, from a fiscal standpoint, you bought a lot of bowls of Cheerios growing up. Don't you want something for your investment? Wouldn't you like to have grandkids that you can see one day and that know how God made them and that don't hate the God that you love? Just don't make no sense to me. Now, you do you do as your conscience dictates. I'm just saying it don't make no sense to me that we would try to immerse our children under some misguided notion of preparing them to, to, to compete in a world that's going to pass away anyway and allow all that we've poured into their life to be undone and reversed so that they might somehow compete in this world system. It doesn't make any sense to me. And it's amazing when you look at young people, very many of them raised in church, raised under sound Bible preaching and teaching, that spend one semester, one semester, under secular ideology and completely reject the notion of eternal things. When I read this passage, hey, listen, I notice the place they were mocking. But, you know, you say, well, preacher, you know, is it so terrible if my kids don't see things exactly like I do? No, it's really not. For some of them, it might be good. (laughs) But understand that when they were mocking the idea of heaven, when they were mocking the idea of Elijah going to heaven, when they were mocking the idea of God taking him to heaven, they were really not just mocking a place, they were mocking God's promises. In making fun of the idea of heaven and salvation, they were scoffing at God's word and promises. You see, it'd be better for a person 
to leave this world the way they did than to grow up rejecting the idea of God's word, than to grow up rejecting the idea of God's truth, than to grow up rejecting the notion of an eternity spent somewhere. I've got news for you. You don't have to believe in eternity to spend it somewhere. Everybody's going to spend it somewhere. And when I read this passage of Scripture, it reminds me that I'd rather be bearscat than be lifeless. By that I mean have no reverence for eternal things. Reject the things that make life life. What a miserable life lay ahead of these young people. There's one final thing I'll mention, and then we'll go eat soup. <laughs> I would say I'd rather be bearscat. That, that's the idea behind this passage, all humor aside, that their fate was better than the alternative then be lawless with no respect for authority, then be heartless with no regard for others, then be lifeless with no reverence for eternal things. But let me let me give you one final one. I'd rather be bearscat than be Christless with no relationship with the Almighty. Say, preacher, I don't see Jesus in this text. Oh, but don't you? It's funny, you know, the Bible says in the New Testament, Christ made this statement to the Pharisees. He said, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The Bible says in the book of Psalms, prophetically about Christ, that this statement would be made of his life, and by him, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written to me to do thy will, O God. And while I understand that Christ may not be explicitly in this passage, we find there's all sorts of passages in the Old Testament where there are pictures, or here's the Bible, the theological term, a type of Jesus Christ. In other words, a picture of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be abundantly clear with what I'm about to say. I think Elisha was a, was a human being, a normal human being like you or like me. I think he uh, was a, a, a uh, sinful man in the sense that we all have a sin nature, and I don't think he was a perfect individual, and I don't think he was Christ in the flesh. But I do think it's interesting when you start to read in the Bible, not just about Elisha, but when you start to read about Elijah, the man that was the forerunner of Elisha. For instance, here's what Christ said about Elijah in Matthew chapter number 17, verse 10. His disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias, that's a New Testament way of saying Elijah, that Elias must first come. The Old Testament closes with a prophecy that Elijah would come and turn the hearts of the children to the Lord before the Lord would appear. Jesus answered and said unto them, now here was their question, they were saying, how can you say you're the Messiah and Elijah has not come yet? Elijah has to come before the Messiah comes. You're here saying you're the Messiah. How do we reconcile that? Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias or Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias or Elijah is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Now you say, well, preacher, that doesn't explain anything. Well, listen to what it says. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So in other words, the Old Testament says before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come as a forerunner to turn the hearts of Israel to their Lord to perform miracles and to arrest the attention of the nation before the Messiah comes. And in the New Testament, Christ says Elijah and John the Baptist, though they are not the same individuals, they serve the same function. Let's reverse engineer that for a moment. If John the Baptist is followed by Christ. And if John is a forerunner uh, of, of Christ, and Elijah is like John the Baptist, 
Could it maybe be said that in some ways, at least as a type, that Elisha pictures Christ for us? By the way, it's interesting when you go through and study the life of Elisha and compare the miracles that he performed, how they inform us and how they directly correlate to many steps in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we consider that, I would say this, that in many ways, Elisha could represent Christ in this passage. When they were rejecting Elisha, just if we follow the type, we could say this, that maybe part of the reason that God dealt in such severity, say, but preacher... Couldn't they have turned to the Lord? They had already dismissed the one that could get them to the Lord. See, it's not just who Elisha could represent in this passage. It's who Elisha could reach in this passage. (laughs) See, Elisha was God's prophet and God's voice. And if they wanted to hear from God and know God, then Elisha was the person they needed. I understand the structure of the Old Testament priesthood. I understand Elisha wasn't even the only prophet in the nation at the time but he was the only prophet in their neighborhood at the time. And they're mocking and scoffing at the very man who is God's voice to the nation, who is God's representative to the nation. And I would say this, who is in that moment at least, their only hope of knowing God. If they wanted to know God, here was the man that could tell him who he was. You say, well, preacher, what does that teach us? Well, it all just reminds me of a simple truth. It all reminds me of this reality. That a person can miss a lot of things in life, but if they miss Jesus Christ, their life was not worth living. You see, why does the Bible say be better for that man for Judas never to have lived? Is it simply because he betrayed the Lord? I think it goes a step further than that. Now, while I do believe that there are varying degrees of punishment, I don't look like, I don't think it looks like Dante's seven circles, but I do believe some are beaten with many stripes and some are beaten with few. And I do believe that, uh, you know, according to, to what a man knoweth, he's judged by. I do believe that. While I do believe in many ways, hell's probably hotter for Judas than it is for a great many people. I believe if you were to ask the person next to Judah, Judas in hell what his situation is like, he'd probably say the very same thing. I wish I'd never even lived. I wish I'd ne- if I had known that I was going to spend all of eternity in hell suffering in angst and torment. I'd gladly trade every moment of pleasure I ever had, not even for heaven, but just to not have to feel what I'm going through. Seventh-day Adventists teach the notion of annihilation. That's unbiblical. The Bible makes abundantly clear that uh, we don't go, uh, we are not annihilated. The Bible says where the worm dieth not. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the smoke of their torment rose up forever and ever and ever. And even to this very morning, the people in the word of God that are recorded as having left this world without faith in God and without Christ are still this morning in hell. The rich man is still in hell this morning. He still is in torment this morning. The smoke of his torment is still arising forever this morning. And I would say this, that it would be far better if a person's going to live their life without Christ and stack up guilt and culpability and transgression and live their life doing nothing but making hell hotter for themselves. It'd be far more humane for God to send two she-bears out of the woods to devour them. Preacher, that's hard. Preacher, that's cruel. Preacher, that's mean. 
Only if you don't believe in hell. But if you understand that every one of us is going to leave this world and spend eternity somewhere, I think we'd all have to say this. It'd be better to be bear scat than to be Christless with no relationship with the Almighty and to live in that condition. You see, this is not a monument to God's cruelty. In many ways, it's a manifestation of God's mercy. And the purpose of this passage is is not to suggest that in some way God is mean and unkind, but it's to show us the ugliness, the hopelessness, the destructiveness of sin. And it's to show us that there are things that are worse than death in the life of a person. I'll tell you this, I don't know what you'll go through in life. You may go through some terrible things. I hope you don't. hope you haven't, and I hope you never will. I I hope you leave this world thinking, thinking suffering was all just a big farce and that never once did you have to taste discomfort and unease. But if you're like most people in this world, you'll taste your measure of suffering. You may go through things that you say, Preacher, it's not fair, it's not just, I shouldn't have to experience it. But can I tell you this, the greatest tragedy of a human being's life would not be that they suffer, would not be that they be snuffed out inordinately young. The great tragedy of a human life would be if they left this life having been the object of God's love, having been the, the, the recipient of Calvary's mercy, having been one whom Christ died for. And you say, well, preacher, who's that? Well, he tasted death for every man. He's a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He died for every every one of us. He died for you. He died for me. He died for every person you'll ever meet in your life. That having all that available, we could maybe liken it this way. Here's these kids standing there at the feet of the voice of God, the man that knows God, that could teach them about God, that could lead them to God. And instead, they're scoffing him, mocking him, hating him, scorning him. The great tragedy would be to be that close to the truth of God and to die and go to hell anyway. And there's worse things in life. I'll tell you this, the worst fate for your life could be that you die without Jesus Christ. Don't let that be your fate. Don't let that be the end of things. Don't let that be where you wind up. It does not have to happen. You can receive Christ. He loves you. He cares about you. He died for you. He'll save you. Let Him save you before it's everlasting too late. Let's bow together this morning. A musician's going to come and play. And I want to give you an opportunity, if God spoke to your heart about some matter, to meet the Lord in the altar. I don't know what God may have spoken to you about, but here's a couple things that pressed on my heart, on my mind this morning. You might have somebody in your life that you know of that's on the same trajectory that these little children were. Say, preacher, I I don't want to see them meet the same fate. Well, God doesn't just do this on a whim. He doesn't do it in every instance. But he did it in this instance, that he might communicate and show to us that it's a real danger that we live life without knowing the Lord, without pursuing the things of God, without showing the love of God towards others, without submitting and subjecting ourselves to the authority of God. There's worse things. Say, preacher, what what if God might have to judge them to get their attention? It'd be better that he did than that he left them alone to their own devices. Preacher, can I trust God with that? You can. He's a merciful God. Won't you come pray for them this morning? And then there might be someone that would say, Brother Toby, if I'm to be honest with you, if I'm just to, to be honest and straightforward and transparent, I'd have to admit 
that I don't believe I'm saved. I don't believe I know the Lord. I don't believe I've ever accepted Christ as my Savior. And I don't want to die without Christ. I don't want my life to mean nothing, but I also don't want my eternity to be suffering and torment and damnation. Preacher, I believe I'm lost. I don't want to be. Would you slip your hand up and let me pray for you? I won't embarrass you. I won't call your name or make you stand up or say anything. I just want to pray for you. Say, Brother Toby, I believe I'm lost. I don't want to be. Would you slip your hand up and then put it right back down? Let me pray for you. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.